Let's be honest, realtors face an ever-changing industry. With emerging tech, growing trends, and a booming market, it's vital to keep up. Join me, Gilbert Gonzalez, CEO for the San Antonio Board of Realtors, as I get real with experts on what realtors need to know in this industry. It's time to get real. We're talking today with April Gavin, who is the senior political representative with the National Association of Realtors. And we wanted to talk a little bit about the CDC eviction moratorium, which um, just came out on August 3rd. So today is August 10th. So we're talking a little bit about that. And we know things may change by the time this podcast come out. Um, the CNC has re- CDC has reimposed the eviction moratorium through October 3rd, 2021, which was previously expiring on July 31st, 2021. And the CDC order states that the expiration is subject to revision based on the changing public health landscape. So April 1st, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for letting me join you today. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to Texans. I am a Texan myself, so. What is the difference about this latest order from the CDC? Is it truly a partial ban on evictions? What NAR would argue is that to say that it's a totally different um, moratorium is actually just playing on semantics. So the current CDC um, eviction ban was put into to, to place at, at the guidance of the White House um, after a public outcry when the moratorium, the most recent moratorium, ex- expired on July 31st. So what the CDC did, because they couldn't do the same exact moratorium as before, and we'll get into that again later, is they said, okay, we're going to put a this moratorium in place in places where there is a heightened level of community transmission, and that is defined by the CDC themselves. So, And then with this moratorium, every 14 days, they will look at the different counties and reevaluate where the ban should be in place. And there's a really great map on our website that you can look at and see kind of the national map and and what that looks like. But visually, most of the country is red. And we estimate that about 90% of the country does fall under this new um, eviction moratorium that's now in effect. So they had to make it different because the Supreme Court had already said, you can't have this eviction ban. So in order to try and do something again. They did differently, and now they've said, but it's got to be in heightened levels of community transmission. But the way they've created it almost does apply to 90% of the United States. Right, exactly. And and that that is the uh, kind of the crux of, of some of the legal battles that are, that are going on that um, I'm sure we'll address a little bit later, but that it is, in fact, the same eviction moratorium, just in a just in a different cloak, if you will. So, what properties would you say are covered under this new ban? Then, so all rental properties um, falling under the the jurisdictions as defined by the CDC, so in heightened transmission uh, areas, uh, are covered. And it's a shifting scale. So, if your county is not covered today. It could be covered in two weeks if the level of uh, COVID transmission goes up. It could also go down, you know, on, on the opposite side. But but um, I, I find I think that's probably unlikely. 
You know, April, one of the things I was curious about, though, is the news I was listening to the other day was talking about how the numbers, it's not that they're not reliable, it's just they're not as consistent because everyone isn't reporting every single day like they were when we started all of this. You know, the the curve was going down, everything was getting better, so people are now starting to report a little bit slower in the numbers. So those numbers, though, are what they're using to determine these areas, right? So these numbers with that are somewhat not being as accurately or timely reported is what's used to make these decisions. Correct. Correct. That seems that seems interesting and problematic, but you know we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, when how can you talk a little bit about how the eviction moratorium originally came about? When was it instituted? Sure. Um, as, as part of one of the many COVID relief packages that came about from March to September, this was this was one of the final final pieces of the pie, and it originated in September of 2020, um, and and it was it was as a result to help um, prevent spread and transmission, and thought being that putting people at risk on the streets during a widespread spread pandemic was not in the interest of public health. And that, that transmitting the disease, if you had a bunch of people um, not kind of sequestered in their own homes, would actually be wor- worse for the overall um, public good. And so that uh, went into effect at September 4th, of 2020. And it has been extended three times um, with this last one, we would argue is actually the fourth. Now, would they argue that it's an, it's a completely new and it's not an extension? The CDC would would argue that it is a completely new eviction moratorium because of its um, look at spread and not an all out um, ban nationwide. So now it's possible when it expired on July 31st, there was this small gap, August 1st through the 3rd, that somebody, that there wasn't anything in place. Is it those evictions then or the, any any processes that happened within those days, have those been called into question or no? That is a great, a great question. So there's a two-day window where if you completed your um, eviction, that that would stay because this executive order does not act retroactively. If you started an, the eviction process, but it was not completed by August 3rd, then um, eviction moratorium currently in place would apply. So I want to switch a little bit to a, a question that I feel a lot of people ask and a lot of people talk about on the news. And that's this idea of, one, how is the government able to do this? And it, it, I think most people agree the government is able to do it. But the thing that they question is, how is it the Center for Disease Control that's making a decision on housing? And yet, you know, the housing and urban development isn't where this is coming from. This is, this is a, to my knowledge, the first time the CDC has ever acted in this in this way, and it is obviously the really unique circumstances. And what what it, it is essentially saying is that based under there's a section called 361 of the Public Health Services Act, um, and it's designed to prevent the further spread of COVID 
um, or other diseases. And so in the interest of public good and, and public safety, they have um, the, the ability to, to issue these, quote, temporary bans. Um, but that being said, obviously, we're just talking about it a little bit, hinting at it. There are uh, concerted efforts that NAR is, is currently pursuing to, um, to end any eviction forms um, going forward. Okay. So now, can, can you talk to me about the days leading up to July 31st? Because you know, the Supreme Court had already issued a statement. I mean, I'm sorry, a ruling. And uh, we assumed everything was going to expire. How, how and why did the CDC take a different route? This is an interesting um, and kind of long-winded <laughs> answer to a very complicated question that I'll do my best to, to, to um, parse it out for you. We have been in uh, conversations with the White House, working in partnership with them to, for, for several months on uh, a, n- a number of topics, but primarily talking about the importance of not extending the eviction moratorium and instead focusing on uh, rental assistance and getting that out to, to um, our members and, and people nationwide. Um, when the eviction moratorium looked like, after the Supreme Court ruled um, in late June, it, it looked like um, the White House was in agreement and, and was on, on board with our position. There was a lot of public pressure that was put on the White House, and I don't know if um, y'all saw it in Texas, but there were members of Congress who camped out on the steps of the Capitol um, trying to demonstrate the homelessness that would be caused if the eviction moratorium came to an end. And the pressure from the progressive uh, caucus in the House was, was really significant. So the White House did kind of about face and said, okay, Congress, we need you to pass some legislation to, to extend the eviction moratorium. So on uh, July 27th, I believe, that's a Thursday if I'm getting my um, dates right, the uh, chair of the Financial Services Committee, uh, Maxine Waters, and the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, started to move legislation that would have extended a national uh, eviction moratorium through December 31st, so through the end of this year. Uh, NAR aggressively went to work and, and really mobilized, and this is where our grassroots um, resources and our members are just so incredibly great, we called all of our FCCs, particularly those on, who had members on the House Financial Services Committee, and said, please contact your member of Congress and explain why this is, this is bad policy. And at the end of the day, we were able to um, kill the legislation. They did not have enough votes to bring it to the floor. They then tried to pass the legislation by unanimous consent, and it did not pass. So we're really proud of our grassroots efforts and being able to, to um, at least for the time being, uh, kill, kill that from going forward. Um, so that's kind of where we were on the legislative front. So then the pre- when that failed, the president said to the CDC, put pressure back on the CDC, and, and, and lots of legal scholars actually said, 
this is not going to pass constitutional muster. The CDC went ahead and said, just because it's a partial ban and it's not a straight up across the board um, eviction moratorium, that it, it was different. And so that's kind of where we are now. So what I wanted to, to ask is, because it's a, a new form of restriction on behalf of the CDC, this is not something where you can look to everything that's happened before from the Supreme Court, from the district courts and all those other things. This is a new, this has to be relitigated completely, correct? That is correct. And we are in the process of doing just that. So, and let's talk about what y'all did initially, though, because NAR is the only one to file a lawsuit to kind of stop these eviction moratoriums. Um, and it, can you tell us a little bit about how that took took flight? We have a plaintiff um, who in, in both in Alabama and in Georgia, and their state associations, with the help of NAR, filed the initial um, lawsuit. We, we are not the only group working in this space. There are others, but this is the one where the um, the ruling that we're working on, working with, um, originated. So um, that was the one that made it all the way to the Supreme Court with with their decision saying, you know, that they ultimately um, you can't do another nationwide eviction moratorium. So in a, in a quick summary. So moving forward, that that because a new um, suit was required, we, we the Alabama and Georgia associations have have, have done that step of the slate once more with the same plaintiffs and have filed an uh, this past week filed an emergency motion in the same court with Judge Dabney Frederick, um, which is in the D.C. court. Uh, asking for her to enforce the Supreme Court's recent order um, to not ex- extend the moratorium without new legislation. And our argument is essentially that it's the same moratorium. It's not any different. And my guess is, though, the CDC is going to say it's not the same moratorium, so you need to start all over again from the district courts to the um, yeah. Court of Appeals and then back up. The whole thing. We we are expecting this to move very very quickly. We um, were expecting a decision um, from Judge Friedrich as early as yesterday. We may we may have one today. So this is an ever moving, um, ever moving, ever changing piece of uh, uh, litigation that's occurring. And both sides are fully prepared, and we expect them to appeal regardless of the decision almost instantaneously, and then the appellate court's decision to move very quickly after that, um, and probably it will end up back at the, at the Supreme Court. You know, we always talk about realtors caring about private property rights, and uh, this is a perfect example of the hard work that the National Association does. Getting a ruling out of the Supreme Court on June 29th is a pretty big deal. Can you talk to us a little bit about the significance of of that kind of coming about? Sure. Um, it, it, it was a big deal, and uh, it's not, not not very many cases get to go to the Supreme Court, so it's, it's really kind of an honor that this issue was even taken up by the highest court 
in our country, and it, and it goes to show the importance of private property rights to um, the core value system of the of, of America, right? So that's first of all kind of cool. Um, but yeah, so there um, were four Supreme Court justices that agreed with um, our position, our merits on the case, and um, challenging the lawfulness of the eviction moratorium, and stating that they would have uh, ended the eviction ban immediately. The, there, the five justices who didn't quite agree with us, um, but weren't not in agreement, the, the real crux of the argument is on the opinion that was uh, written by Justice Kavanaugh and his deciding vote to keep the moratorium in place um, until the end of July, which was two weeks, um, essentially, or was just a few, few weeks after the Supreme Court issued their, their statement. And so he said, specifically, in his, in, in my, and I'm going to do quotes, in my view, clear and specific congressional authorization would be necessary for the CDC to extend the eviction moratorium, end quote. And so that basically was the, the battle cry to um, Congress to say, if you want to keep doing this, it can't be the executive branch who's going along and doing this. It has to come from Congress. Um, so, which is, which is, you know, part of the, the three-leg system that our, our government works so, so great on. So it's, it's really interesting, um, that the CDC then went and, and took the actions that they did without that clear, um, delineation from Congress. I mean, that's a perfect example of the three separated system, right? The Supreme Court is saying, you, Mr. Right. President, don't get to do this. It has to come through Congress. Um, Congress didn't do it, though, and here we are. And here we are. So I think this is going to be uh, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. And I think it'll it'll definitely be hopefully a victory for private property rights um, for and and set a precedent, so we won't have to deal with this going forward. What do you think? Uh, aside from the legal challenges, what do you think the likelihood is that congressional intervention? will happen uh, in order to make this more likely to stand. I mean, that is clearly what the Supreme Court said. If this is going to stand, it has to come from Congress. Where do you see that coming into play? I, I think a lot of it is going to hinge upon what the courts say themselves with this re most recent lawsuit and, and where they stand on, on the argument. I would say that Right now, Congress is on is in their in, in district work period in, in August, and they'll return to Washington in September. On their docket, one of the things that they're really focusing on is uh, are a couple of infrastructure packages, which were part of the president's uh, campaign promises. It's something that he's very much in support of, and there is bipartisan support on both sides to get something done in that space. So that's going to take up a lot of the oxygen in the room, and not to say that Congress can't do more than one thing at a time. They certainly can, but when it's controversial, it, it makes it even that much more hard or challenging to to pass and, and get through. So it is uh, things are happening right now that 
have never happened before. So for me to say this is not going to happen before October 3rd, I can't say that. I don't think anybody could. It certainly could. I think there are some definite challenges for getting it passed and signed into law, though, particularly in the Senate. You know, NAR has great working relationships with the members of Congress. What have y'all heard about their reactions to this? Both sides. You know, it is a it is a hard position to be in, I think, for everyone. NAR certainly does not want to be the space of kicking people out on the street. That is not that is not the goal here. Goal is and we've communicated that with our with our um uh congressional friends on both sides of the aisle. I think the it, it so it's a kind of an it's a PR optics battle in some regards for certain members of Congress. Depending on where they're from, they are very sympathetic to to our position. And I, I, I would point to the legislation failing last week in the House um, to to their their empathy with with NAR's um, views on this. So there, there are some that are really really opposed, but a, a, a lot of members when you when you talk to them about it, you know they don't want to hurt small business owners, small mom and pop landlords either, because you know they they understand the plight that our that our members are in as well. You know, and I think a lot of that has to do with prom- promoting the solutions that are out there. And I know NAR and a lot of entities have been working on rental assistance and getting that getting that out as a top priority because that would be a great fix, right? Is if we could help both people stay in their their rental properties and the people who own those properties to be able to continue their own obligation. That's the solution. Um, what have have you? heard from NAR or from other places as far as the available to to help people? You know, what's interesting about this whole process is that um, with the funds being dispersed, the states were in charge of ultimately dispersing the, 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 the $50 billion in emergency relief funds to the different tenants or housing providers um, through their own, own portals. And the states have, have had their own challenges Number one, because they uh, have never had to disperse this type of funding like this through their these particular agencies that are being asked to do it ever before. So it's a whole learning curve for for the states. So I, I don't want to make the state governments seem like the bad guy. They're they're stuck in a hard and challenging place too. But the main thing that we're trying to do is help the states get the funds out, and we have been working. I think I mentioned this earlier. We've been working with the White House in partnership with them um, to promote resources that are available. The the one thing that is interesting is that different states and different localities can actually layer on additional requirements um, that you have to meet um, in order to receive funding, which makes it even more challenging to get those funds out. So that's another thing that we're trying to um, help folks work through and try to minimize some of that red tape. But because what happens in San Antonio and the process there is, is different than what happens in even Houston. So it is a, it's a, it's a, and, and forget about California. It's way different there. So um, it's not a one size fits all, but we are trying to educate folks um, and our members particularly on, on different resources that are available. We have them on our national website, um, 
which you can go to if you if you just type in eviction moratorium, it'll pull that up. There's a toolkit there that you can find. But a, a great one to go to is the consumerfinance.gov, and that's all one word, consumerfinance.gov backslash rent help. And that's a that's a great resource for folks to tap into as well. So if I understand correctly, there is fifty billion dollars worth of federal emergency funding, but only six point five percent of that has actually been able to get into the hands of those who need it. Is there anything that locally, the, in, you know, at the state level or, or locally, we can do as associations to help get that into the hands that, um, that need it? Yeah. And in fact, I was talking to your Texas realtor counterpart earlier this week on, on ideas and suggestions to get, get things moving in Texas even 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 more i know it is really frustrating and it goes honestly i think a lot of it goes to the fact that this is the first time this has ever happened that anyone has ever had to that an agency um has had to operate in this capacity and so i think it is a bit of a learning curve but it's but it's time that we kind of get on with it you know so um yes not not to worry your texas realtors are definitely um are definitely working on 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 uh, helping remove the bottleneck in Texas as we speak. Excellent. And I think you mentioned something earlier, and I know um, our NAR chairman, Charlie Oppler, has mentioned mom and pop housing providers. A lot of people have the opportunity, or a lot of people think that the people who are owning rental properties are huge corporate entities. But that's why we call them mom and pop, because they're not. Right, Gilbert. I love I love that question. It is it is a really good one. Well, so we actually, as part of a coalition, work with a group of of multiple different um, entities, and some of them are these huge uh, commercial apartment complexes, and you know who may be owned by a hedge fund. They have the capital to be able to withstand not collecting rent for a year or two and and they're fine you know it's an inconvenience we use the term mom and pop as a way to separate for our members of congress and to bring it home what we found is most of our members who participate in this in this space as landlords do so um, in order to have a little bit of supplemental income uh, so they have a couple of investment properties that they that they rent out oftentimes it's it's a um, it's a mechanism for their future retirement plans, and um, so it's not. We want to put a, a more human face with with the concept of landlord because oftentimes it it, it it feels less warm and fuzzy, and really kind of illustrates that these are people too who are not the trillionaires who can afford to not have the income coming in because they ultimately are still on the hook for the taxes and for, you know, their mortgage payments that they have one and the maintenance of the property, et cetera, et cetera, even without receiving a dime from their tenants. And part of that was the obligations were still on them to maintain the property and keep their own financial right. obligations for that and still provide housing for people who, um, who needed it. 
So obviously I'm going to ask you to look into a crystal ball and predict the future, but it seems almost impossible because it's a constant changing environment. We're doing this um, today, but like you mentioned earlier, the court could issue a ruling tomorrow. Where do you think we're going to be in a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months? I think it's really an ever-changing landscape, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see where the courts fall on this going forward. And um, it'll be interesting to see if Congress does choose to take action uh, after failing uh, right before they went out for August recess to pass something. So are people's positions going to change? You know, all signs say that the Congress is actually improving. So if the economy continues to improve, I think that that certainly helps the argument that rental assistance is probably the better solution, not continued eviction moratorium. Um, so we'll, more to come, you know. April, I appreciate you giving us this update on everything that's been going on with the CDC at the national level. And we look forward to keeping our members informed over the coming days. Thank you so much for letting me join you. Have a great day and welcome back to Texas anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Get Real. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and share us with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. More information on this episode can be found at sabor.com slash get real. Until next time.